Fairylands of the South Seas by James Norman Hall and Charles Nordoff. Chapter 15. Tahitian Tales. The evening was very warm and still. The sea rumbled faintly on the reef half a mile offshore. And behind us, above the vague heights of the interior, a full moon was rising. The palms were asleep after their daily tussle with the trades, fronds drooping and motionless in silhouette against the sky. We had spread mats on the grass close to the beach. Tanautu lay beside me, chin propped in her hands. She had been bathing, and her dark hair, still damp, hung in a cloud about her face. Her grandmother, Arima, the woman of Mopti, sat facing us, cross-legged in the position of her people. Now and then a fish leaped into the lagoon. Once far down on the beach a ripe nut thudded to the earth. If you two like, said old Ermima, I will tell you the story of my ancestor, the lizard woman. The girl smiled and raised her head, in the little gesture which corresponds to our nod. That is a good tale, she declared, and true, for I am named after that lizard woman who died so many years ago. The woman of Mapiti lit a match to a dry leaf of black tobacco over the flame. When she had twisted it in a strip of panduas and inhaled deeply of the smoke, she spoke once more. Her voice was flexible and soft, with a sweet huskiness, an instrument to render the music of the old island tongue. Its cadences measured and rapid, falling or rising with the ebb and flow of the tide. In the old days, Aramina began, so long ago that his name is now forgotten, there was a king of Papanu a just man successful in war and beloved by his people his wife was a daughter of bora bora the most beautiful woman of that island she was the delight of his heart and they had many children when she fell ill and died a great sadness came over the king he could do nothing but brood over his loneliness in his dreams he saw the face of his wife life was hateful to him even his children, shouting and playing about the house, grew hateful in his eyes. A day came at last, when he could endure the sight of them no longer, and a plan to be rid of them took form in his mind. There had been a storm, and he knew that the waves would be running high at a place where there was a break in the reef. Come, he said to the woman of his household, bring my children to swim. It will hearten me to see them sporting in the surf. But when they came to that beach and the women saw the great waves thundering in through the pass, they were afraid, for even a strong swimmer could not live in such a sea. Then the king, whose hope was that his children might drown, bade them forget their fears. One after another the young boys and girls went into the sea and were swept out by the undertow, fearless and shouting. The waves broke over them, and at times they disappeared. The women began to cover their faces, for they thought, these pretty children so dear to us are as good as dead. Then the watchers saw a strange thing, a true thing, told by my grandfather, who had learned it from the lips of his ancestors. Beyond the breaking of the surf the children began to sport in the water, diving and leaping higher and higher into the air. Their skins grew black and glistened in the sunlight, their arms turned to fins, and their feet became like the tails of fish. The gods of those days had taken pity on their innocence, 
and had made them the first dolphins, the playful children of the sea. And the king was glad, for he saw his children would not die, and he knew that they could no longer come to his house to bring back bitter memories. As the years went on, the daughters of many chiefs were brought to the king, but no woman found favor in his eyes. His heart was always heavy, and no man saw him laugh. Sometimes he walked alone in the mountains, where men do not go even to-day. For he feared nothing, neither the raving spirits of the dead, nor the lizard people, who in those days lived in the interior of the island. Fifty generations of men have lived and died since our ancestors came to this island. They found the lizard people already in possession of the land. Ta-a-tamu, they called them, half-human, half-lizard able to climb among the cliffs where no man could follow. The human warriors were more powerful in battle, and as time went on, the lizard folk were driven into the fastness of the mountains. Now the last of them is dead, but if you doubt that they once lived, go into the hills, and you will see the remains of their plantain gardens high above cliffs no human creature could scale. My own people are traveling the same path. Soon the last of us will also be dead and the white man will glance at the scattered stones of our marias to make sure that once upon a time we lived but i was telling you of the king one day as he wandered alone in the mountains a lizard woman was lying in the fern of the trail the head woman of her people skilled in magic and able to read the future the king was a tall man very strong and handsome as he passed without looking down she seized his foot gently at that he looked down, and his heart swelled with love of her. He dwelt with her in the mountains, and when at last he came down to the sea, his people had given him up for dead. In due time a son was born to the lizard woman, a strong and beautiful boy, the image of the king, his father. She reared him alone in the mountains, and grew to love him better than her life. But when she looked into the future her tears fell. When the child was twelve years old, she led him to the mouth of her valley and talked long with him, telling him what he was to do before she turned away and went back to her own place, weeping. Taking thought of her words, the boy went alone to the village of the king. His dress was the skin of lizards. When he came to that place, he said to those about, Take me to the king, my father. But when they repeated his words, the king said, It is false. I have no wife, and no child. Then the child sent back word, asking the king if he had forgotten walking one day in the mountains many years before. With that, the king remembered his love for the lizard woman, and bade his men bring the boy to him. And when he saw the strong, fearless child, and heard his people exclaim at the beauty of the boy, the wondrous likeness to himself, his heart softened, and he said, This is indeed my son. The years passed, and the heart of the lizard woman, sad and alone in the mountains, grew ever more hungry for her son, until at length her life became intolerable without sight of him. She stole down from the hills by night and went softly about the village, weeping and lamenting, because her son was not to be seen. The people trembled at sight of her in the moonlight, and at the sound of her weeping, and the king feared her, for he knew that she was powerful in magic and thought that she had come to take her son away. In his fear he took canoe with the young man, and they went down the wind to Tehira, the low island, where he thought to be safe from her. But the lizard woman, by her magic, 
knew where they had gone. She looked into the future and saw only sadness and death for herself. What must be cannot be avoided. She leapt into the sea and swam first to Britannia, where she had lands and where the bones of her ancestors lay in the Marie. When she came to that shore, she knew that her death was near and that she would die by the hand of her own son. Close by the beach, she stopped to weep, and the place of her weeping is still called Dainu Edi, the little falling of tears. Further on her path, she stopped again to weep still more bitterly, and to this day the name of that place is Tainu Rei, the great falling of tears. When she had been to her Mori, she plunged again into the ocean and swam to Tentarua. In all the islands there was no swimmer like her. Because of his mother, her son was named Amona, swimmer in the sea. The king and the king's son saw Tinihatu coming far off, for Tinihatu was the name of that lizard woman, and they felt such fear that they climbed to the top of a tall palm. Then, knowing the manner of her death, she came out of the water, weeping all the while, and began to climb the palm tree. The two men trembled with fear of her. They threw down coconuts, hoping to strike her so that she would fall to the earth. But though she was bruised and her eyes blinded with tears, she climbed on until she was just beneath them, clinging to the trunk where the first fronds began to branch. She stopped to rest for a moment, and as she clung to the palm, allowing her body to relax, her son hurled a heavy nut which struck her on the breast. She made no outcry, but her hands let go their hold and she fell far down to the earth. But the men still trembled, and were afraid to come down out of the tree, for she struck in a swampy place and was long in dying. All afternoon she lay there, weeping and lamenting, until at sunset the spirit left her body. When she was dead, they took her to Retaritaria, and buried her in her moray. After that, the two men returned to Papanu, and when the king died, the son of the lizard woman, reigned long in his stead. These are true words, for the blood of swimmer in the sea, born of the lizard woman, flows in my veins. Old Ariima ceased to speak. From the coconut shell at her side she took a lump of black native tobacco and began to tear off a leaf for a fresh cigarette. Her granddaughter turned on one side, head resting on a folded forearm, and looked at me. Hi, these are true words, she said. Or is my name not the same as that of the lizard woman? During a thousand years, perhaps more, my Tikito Mai, since the beginning, the women of our family have been called Tihetatu. You yourself, though we call you Tari, have a real name among us, Amona, after her son. These names belong to us. No other family does well to use them. The flare of a match illuminated for an instant the wrinkled and aquiline face of Arima. As she tossed the glowing stick aside, the moonlit smoothed away the lines. I was aware only of her black eyes, wonderfully alive and young. Tell him of Poya, she suggested, and the dead ones in robes of flame. Aye, said the girl, that is a strange tale, and it came about because of a name. She sat up, shaking her black hair over her shoulders. The woman who saw these things, she went on, 
was another of our ancestors. She was called Poia, a name her grandfather had given. She lived in Tainu Idi, in Batia, where Tainu too first stopped to weep. One day in mid-afternoon, Poia was sitting in the house beside her mother, busy with weaving of a mat. All at once a darkness closed in before her eyes, and she felt the spirit struggling to leap from her body. It was like the pangs of death, but at last her spirit was free, and with its eyes she saw her body lying as if in sleep, and perceived that there were strangers in the house, two women and a man. The women were very lovely, with flowers in their hair and robes of scarlet, which seemed to flicker like fire. They were Viaharatuna and Viaharatuna ancestors dead many years before, who loved Paya dearly. The man was likewise dressed in flaming scarlet, and he wore a tall headdress of red feathers. He was Tanatua, another of Puya's ancestors. The three had come from the Maori to seek Puya, and they spoke to her kindly, saying, Come with us, daughter. And though she felt shame when she looked down at her dull dress and disordered hair, she followed where they led. They took her to a Maori of Tuinui Rahi and where Poyua saw a huge woman waiting for them. The right side of that woman was white, and the left side black. When she saw them coming, she fell on her knees and began to weep for joy. "'It is you, Poia,' she cried. "'Then welcome.' As Poia stood there, marveling, the stone of the Maori opened before her like the door of a great house, and Viahinatua and Viahinatuna said to her, "'Go in.' The door gave on a chamber of stone, the floor was of stone, and the ceiling and walls. They passed through another door, into a second empty room of stone, and thence into a third, and there Poia chanced to look down at herself. She had become lovely as the others. Her hair was dressed with flowers and her robe was scarlet, seeming to flicker like fire. When she was looking at herself, no longer ashamed, the two women said to her, You must stay here, for you belong to us. We are angry with your grandfather because he called you Poia. That is not all of your name. Your true name is Tetanuni Poia Terimaheta. That name belongs to us, and you must have it, for you are our descendant, and we love you. She did not know that this was her name. She thought it was only Poia. In spite of their kindness, she was frightened and told them that she wished to go home. They took her to the door of her house and left her there, and she found herself lying with the half-woven mat in her fingers. Her mother, who was sitting beside her, only said, But Poia, in fear and wonder at what she had seen, said nothing to her mother, not even when the two went to bathe. The next day in mid-afternoon Poia felt the darkness close in before her eyes, the pangs of death as her spirit struggled and at last escaped from the body but this time she found herself gloriously clothed and beautiful at once. All went as before until they came to the third chamber of the Moray. There were leaves spread on the floor of that place, as if for a feast, but the only food was purple flowers. The others sat down and began to eat, and Poia attempted to do likewise, but the taste of the flowers was bitter in her mouth. Again the two women said, You belong to us. You must not be called Poia. But... Tetoni poia tari matatinaya, and they coaxed her to stay with them. 
but she wept and said that she could not bear to be separated from her husband, whom she loved. As before, they were kind to her, and took her to her house, where she awoke as if from sleep, and said nothing. It was the same the next day, but this time, when they came to the third chamber of the Marie, Vahinatua and Vahinatua said, Now you must no longer think of returning. You are ours, and we wish you to stay here with us. Boea wept at their words, for she began to think of the man she loved. I must go, she said. If I had no husband, I would gladly remain with you here. At last, when her tears had fallen for a long time, the three dwellers in the Mori took her home. They bade her farewell, reluctantly, saying that next day she must come to them for good. This time Boea awoke in great fear, and she told the story to her mother when they went to bathe together. Her mother went straight to the grandfather to tell him what she had seen, and ask him if her true name was Poia, as he had said years before. Then the old man said that he had done wrong, for the name was not only Poia, but Tetanoia Poia Tari Materina, a name which belonged to Vahanetua and Tanetua, and Viva Tetanetua, and these three came no more to get Poia. They were content, for they loved her, and wanted her to have her their name. As she finished her story, Tehinatua lay down once more, resting her head on her grandmother's knee. My thoughts were wandering far away across a great ocean and a continent, to the quiet streets of New Bedford, set with old houses in which descendants of the whalers live out their ordered lives. In all probability the girl beside me, Polynesian to the core, and glorying in a long line of ancestors whose outlandish names fell musically from her lips, had cousins who lived on those quiet streets. For she was the granddaughter of a New Bedford wait-in captain, the husband of Arima, a Puritan who ate once too often of the fay and lingered on the islands to turn traitor and rear a family of half-caste children, and finally to die. The story is an old one, repeated over and over again in every group. The White Cross, the half-white's children at the parting of the ways, the turning aside from the stony path of the father's race to the pleasant ways of the mother. And so in the end the strain of white, further diluted with each succeeding generation, shows itself in nothing more than a name, seldom used and oftentimes forgotten. It is nature at work and she is not always cruel. Is it the same with names in your land? Aramina was asking. Are certain names kept in a family throughout the years? It is somewhat the same, I told her, though we do not prize names so highly. My father and grandfather and his father were all named Charles, which you called Terry. Among my people, she said, the possession of a name means much. As far back as our stories go, there has been a man named Maurice in each generation of my father's family. Some of these Maurice are strange men. There was Maurice Terrabona Eno, who fished with a bait of coconut for the spirits of men drowned in the sea, and another was Maurice Matatofa, who stole a famous shark, the adopted child of a man of Federapiti. That was a good shark. It lived in the lagoon, harming no one. And every day the man and his wife called it to them with certain secret words. 
but Marie coveted the shark, and he prepared an underwater cave in the coral before his house. Then, when the cave was ready, he hid in the bushes on the shore of the lagoon while the man was calling his shark, and in this way Marie learned the secret words of summons. When the man and his wife had gone, Moray called out the words. The shark appeared close in shore and followed him to the cave, where it stayed well content, and that night he taught it new words. Next day the man and his wife called for the shark, and when it did not come, they suspected that Marie had enticed it away. After that they went to the house of Marie and accused him of the theft, but he said, Give the call, if you think I have stolen your shark. I have a shark, but it is not yours. They called, but the shark did not come, for he had taught it new words. Then Marie called, and the shark came at once, so he said, See, it must be my shark, for it obeys me and not you. As he turned away to return to Ferapitihiti, the other man said, I think it is my shark, but if it will obey you and no other, you may have it. Some days later a party of fishermen came to Maurice's cave where the shark lived. They baited a great hook and threw it into the water, and as it sank into the cave they chanted a magic chant. Then the shark seized the bait, and as they hauled him out, they laughed with joy and chanted, Emato mari paru maru, e aimi mai ainte The chant is something about a good hook and a good line, but the other words are dead. What they mean no man knows today. That night there was a feasting in the houses of the fishermen. But next morning, when Marie went down to the sea and called his shark, nothing came. Though he stayed by the lagoon, calling from morning till the sun had set. After that he learned that his shark had been killed and eaten, and from that day none of Maurice's undertakings prospered. Finally he pined away and died. Tihinanatu stirred and sat up, eyes shining in the moonlight. The subject of sharks has for these people a fascination we do not understand, a significance tinged with the supernatural. They did evil to kill that shark, she said, for all sharks are not bad. I remember the tale my mother told me of Veratora, the long-haired Pomotian woman, wife of Mori Omaai. Her god was a shark. It was many years ago when the vessels of the white men were few in these islands. Mori shipped on a schooner going to New Zealand, taking his wife with him, as was permitted in those days. That woman was not like us. She understood ships and had no fear of the sea. As for swimming, there were few like her. When she came here, the woman marveled at her hair. It reached to her ankles, and she wore it coiled about her head in two great braids, thick as a man's arm. The captain of that schooner was always drinking. Most of the time he lay stupefied in his bed. As they sailed to the south, the sea grew worse and worse, but the captain was too drunk to take notice. The men of the crew were in great fear. They had no confidence in the mate, and the seas were like mountain ridges all about them. The morning came, when Viertura said to Marie, Before nightfall this schooner will be at the bottom of the sea. Let us make ready. Rub yourself well with coconut oil, and I will braid my hair and fasten it tightly about my head. Toward midday they were standing together by the shrouds, when Viertura said, Quick, leap into the rigging. That woman knew the ways of the sea. Next moment a great wave broke over the schooner. The decks gave way, and most of the people who were below died, the death of rats at once. But 
Viratora and her husband leaped into the sea before the vessel went down. A day and a night they were swimming. There were times when Mori would have lost courage if Viratora had not cheered him. Put your hands on my shoulders, she said, and rest. Remember that I am a woman of the low islands. We are as much at home in the sea as on land. All the while she was praying to the shark who was her god. The storm was abated soon after the schooner went down. Next day the sea was blue and very calm. Presently, when the sun was high, Viratora said to her husband, I think my god will soon come to us. Put your head beneath the water and tell me what you see. With a hand on her shoulder, he did as she had told him, gazing long into the depth below. Finally he raised his head, dripping, and when he had taken breath he spoke, I see nothing, he said, not but the Miti Harini, the blue salt water. She prayed a little to her god and told him to look again, and the third time he raised his head, with fear and wonder on his face. Something is rising in the sea beneath us, he said, as his breath came fast a great shark, large as a ship and bright red like the mountain plantain. My stomach is sick with fear. Now I am content, said the Pomodian woman, for that great red shark is my god. Have no fear. Either he will eat us and so end our misery, or he will carry us safely to shore. Next moment the shark rose beside them. Like the hull of a ship floating bottom-up, the fin on his back stood tall as a man. When Viratora and her husband swam to where he waited them, and with the last of their strength they climbed up on his rough side and seated themselves, one on each side of the fin, to which they clung. For three days and three nights they sat on the back of the shark while he swam steadily to the northeast. They might have died of thirst, but when there were squalls of rain, Viratora unbound her hair and sucked the water from one long braid, while Marie drank from the other. At last, in the first gray of dawn, they saw land. Mangonea, I think you call it. The shark took them close to the reef. They sprang into the sea, and the little waves carried them ashore without a scratch. As they lay resting on the reef, the shark swam to and fro, close in, as though awaiting some word from them. When she saw this, Viratora stood up and cried out in a loud voice, We are content. We owe our lives to thee. Now go and we shall stay here. At those words the shark god turned away and sank into the sea. To the day of her death, Viratora never saw him again. After that she and her husband walked into the village, where the people of Maritia made them welcome, and after a few years they got passage on a schooner back to Maurice's own land. The soft voice of the girl died away. I heard only the murmur of the reef. Masses of cloud were gathering about the peaks above our heads, the moon was sailing a clear sky, radiant and serene. The world was all silver and gray and black. The quiet lagoon, the shadowy land, the palms like inky lace against the moonlight. Tao stiffed a little yawn and stretched out on the mat, with the abrupt and careless manner of a child. Her grandmother tossed away a burnt-down cigarette. "'It is late,' said the woman of Mapati, "'and we must rise at daybreak. Now let us sleep.' End of chapter 15